I think I've told you before that I have a really cool desk. It's standard issue House of Representatives to every new congressman who comes in. And my desk used to belong to Bert Talcott, a longtime member of this church. And so there's two drawers in my desk that I'm particularly fond of. One is the center desk that has his signature and the years that he served in the House of Representatives from. And then I have a side drawer. And in that side drawer is a bunch of cards. There are cards, there are notes, there are typewritten things, there are handwritten things, there's all kinds of stuff. And I save them because they're all notes of encouragement. They're all something that somebody took the time one time to send me, sometimes a couple of words, sometimes two or three pages of letters, just to encourage me, just to remind me that I wasn't alone, just to remind me that I was doing a good job. And I saved those, because like everybody else's job, there are some days that are better than others. There are some days that are more challenging than others. And every once in a while, it's just nice to know that there's somebody out there who has an encouraging word for you. And so I've saved them. And I look at them and it just reminds me that I'm surrounded by people. I'm not alone. And that people appreciate me. And it's been a really important thing. And the gift of encouragement that we can bring to each other is also in the middle of the story that we're going to tell. So you can look for that in amongst all of the other things we're going to talk about. So today we are a little bit further on in the larger scripture story and we're going to be looking at 2 Kings uh, chapter 6 verses 8 through 17. It says, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. So last week we talked about there were two different nations. The, the kingdom of Israel had been broken up into the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, and that there was a series of bad kings and that they sent prophets to each. And last week we talked about Elijah. This week we're talking about Elisha. And in this case, they're fighting now with the Arameans. There's always fighting with somebody. So the king of Aram was like, think about Damascus, Syria. It's just kind of the next country over to the east. And what's happening is that the king of Aram is trying to basically ambush the king of Israel. And every time the king of Aram has some plan, God reveals it to Elisha, and Elisha tells the king of Israel, and so they don't show up, and this really frustrates the king of Aram. So the king of Aram thinks that somebody is spying for the king of Israel. And his people are like, no, nobody's spying. He's just got this ace up his sleeve named Elisha. And Elisha tells him, and I love this line, he tells him what you say in your bedroom. 
Um, so this really makes the king of Aram mad. He's like, I gotta get rid of this guy because I want to beat the Israelites. And so they tell him where Elisha is going to be. And so at night, the king of Aram moves his army down and surrounds this town of Dothan. And it's still kind of there. It's a tell. It's very large, maybe a couple hundred feet off of the surrounding valley. Um, and, but it's not so massive that it couldn't be fairly easily encircled by an army. How you move that much of an army in overnight without making noise, that I don't know. But the servant gets up in the morning goes out for his coffee and looks around and instead of just seeing fields of you know, grain and barley, he sees an army instead. And so this looks pretty desperate. And immediately he thinks, we are surrounded. Now the effect of being surrounded is there's no way out. If the enemy had been lined up on one side, you still got three other sides you can go out but they have effectively surrounded this city, which is basically a circle. So there's no way out. The next biggest problem is that the enemy is larger than they are. It doesn't say that there's really any military at all in Dothan, and the king of Israel is not there, just Elisha is there, and probably a bunch of farmers and other people. So the enemy's larger than they are, and they have bigger guns than they do. Chariots are pretty impressive instruments of war. So they're surrounded, they haven't got much help, they've got big guns, and this is basically a formula for depression and hopelessness, if nothing else. So Elisha's servant can see no way out. And that's a very dangerous place to be when you don't feel like there's any hope or any relief. I think of some of the difficult situations that we all face right now. I mean, there is tremendous polarization in our country. People hate each other for various reasons and people are drawing up sides and there doesn't seem to be any middle ground anymore. And really bad theology isn't helping us out here. I mean, God is not a God of decay. God is the God who brings life out of death. God's not the God of hopelessness. God is the God of hope. But we have a significant number of people who are convinced that they're going to be rescued and then the whole thing is going to burn, it removes the motivation to be a part of God's plan to bring the hope of Jesus to the world. Anyway, we're deeply divided on so many levels. Is there any middle ground left or do we have to hate with a deep and passionate hate anyone who has a different viewpoint than we do? I mean, how do we get out of this mess? It seems insurmountable. Or maybe you're in a really difficult work situation. Maybe you've got a boss who's the personification of the Peter Principle. The Peter Principle says that you rise to your level of incompetence. So you've got your boss who maybe, you know, as an assistant manager did great, they made that person a manager, and they are completely over their head. And instead of learning and growing, they just inflict their pathologies on you day in and day out. And it's just a desperate situation. Or maybe you're just going through some really financial hard times. Maybe you're trying to dig yourself out of a mountain of debt. Or maybe there's been some enormous financial downturn. Maybe you've lost everything through a business failure. And it just seems, how are you gonna move forward? Maybe you're being bullied. And every day you know you need to go back into a really hard situation. Or maybe you're the parent 
of somebody who's being bullied. You send your beloved kid off to school every day and you just pray that they don't come home having experienced more bullying. And you're like, how do we break this cycle? And it could go on and on and on. Health issues, marriage problems, on and on and on. You get up in the morning and before you grab your coffee, you see the enemy forces are completely surrounding you and it feels too big for you. You feel very alone. So this is a pretty desperate place that oftentimes we find ourselves. And it is how Elisha's servant finds himself now. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. So they wake up in the morning, they're surrounded by chariots and horses of the enemy, and there's two very different reactions that happen here. You get the panic of Elisha's servant, and you get the peace of Elisha. Why is there a difference between the reaction of the two men? Well, let's start with Elisha. Elisha has cultivated a walk with God. He had a history that he could reach back to. He'd trusted God in the past, and had seen that God was faithful, and maybe, you know, he's a seer, he's a prophet. God had told him what the king of Aram was going to do. Maybe he already knew that they were there. Maybe he already knew what God was going to do. Or maybe Elisha knew that God wasn't finished with him. I, I don't know. But somehow, <clears throat> Elisha is able to tap into his memory, his history with God. And so when this challenge arises, he's able to face it peacefully. And notice how specific Elisha's response is. It's not, I'm sure it will all turn out okay. That's just wishful thinking. His response is, there are more for us than there are against us. That's faith. It's kind of like Elisha is saying, because we know this is true, because we've read the story up to this point, I've already seen the chariots of fire before. God is going to be present here again. So Elisha had this history with God, he cultivated a walk with God. So when he needed reassurance, when he needed faith, his relationship with God was already there. He had a history. He knew from experience that God was faithful. He's kind of the Old Testament personification of what Paul is writing about in 2 Corinthians when he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. So can you imagine your wife wakes you up really early on a Saturday morning and says, get out of bed, I signed us up for a marathon, let's go. And you're like, we've never done anything like that before. I haven't run since high school. I mean, I, I had a mean 100 meters in high school, but it, it's been a while. I mean, if you're gonna get up and run a marathon, you're gonna wanna practice, you're gonna wanna train. So when it comes to race day, you're ready. You can't just jump up and hope that, you know, your training in high school 20 years ago is going to help you. You're going to get about 100 yards in and you're going to die. If you're going to run a marathon, you have to prepare for it. So why do we think that we can just ignore God and then when things go south, 
we can rely on him to show up when we never have. It's kind of crazy. So Elisha had done his homework. Elijah had put in the time. Elijah knew God. He cultivated a relationship with God, which makes me think I need to stop and ask, what are you cultivating? And if things go south, do you have a relationship with God that you can tap into that already is existing? Or do you just have to hope that because God is a good God that he'll show up and help you anyway? What will you have to call on when things get tough? So this challenge comes and it doesn't shake Elisha. He has this deep sense of peace because he has a history with God. Now contrast that with the panic of Elisha's servant. One of the things that's not entirely obvious in the text is that Elisha's servant is brand new. He just got a new servant. In the last chapter, there's a couple of very interesting stories, which you'll have to read on your own, but something happens and Elisha needs a new servant. Let's just summarize it like that. So he's just learning this God thing. He doesn't have the history. He can't see the same thing. And so he looks out and he sees this army arrayed against them and he panics. So Elijah's servant has to do what at one point in time we've all needed to do or have done and continue to do. He needs to learn to trust God. And I think that there's this pause between verse 16 and verse 17. In verse 16, Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I think there's a pause because then he has to say verse 17. So I think he says that and he looks at the response of his servant and I think Elisha says to himself, well, that doesn't seem to be working because I think Elisha's servant says out loud, how can I not be afraid? I mean, I imagine this conversation where Elisha goes, don't worry. And his servant goes, how do you do that? And Elisha's like, don't worry. And his servant's like, well, that's easy for you to say. And I sort of sympathize because I really don't want to be a person who worries. I really don't want to lay awake at two o'clock in the morning and think about things, most of which I have no control over, but sometimes I do. So, and I don't know, maybe it's frustrating for you too when somebody tells you, don't worry. It's like, okay, well, tell me how not to do. Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what I'm going to do. I don't think you can stop worrying from happening, but I think that you can change the course of worrying and not give it power over you. I think it's possible to turn the worry into something else, even into prayer. So a couple of tricks that I have learned when I'm awake at night or when something is bothering me or I'm just worrying. One is a prayer that's actually a breath prayer. And there's plenty of these in Christianity. The most famous of them, and I've talked about this before, is called the Jesus Prayer. It comes down out of the Orthodox tradition and it basically is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But what you do is you pray it as you breathe. So you inhale and you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and then you exhale and you say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's kind of like breathing in the presence of the Holy Spirit and breathing out the faith that he brings. And in addition to redirecting and helping you focus on God, it also changes your breathing pattern and is helpful. So try that sometime. 
or maybe memorize the scripture. I think of like 1 John 4, for greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. For whatever you're facing, maybe just memorize that scripture verse or something like that. And every time you start worrying about something, just begin to repeat the truth of scripture to yourself and that will help change your, your feelings. You can also sing a song like a mighty fortress is our God or the God of angel armies. I remember I was in a really, really scary situation one time and I happened to know a song, I mean, I happened to know a song that was based on Psalm 61, which says, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And it was just singing that psalm over and over again that got me through a pretty scary situation. So I think we can take our worry and do a couple of those things and it reminds us of God's presence and kind of interrupts the control that worry can have over us. And I think you can ask, God, show me where you're present. Or God, show me where you're at work. And that's not a prayer of unbelief. That's not a prayer of doubt. That's actually a very faith-filled prayer because it acknowledges that God is there. You just might not be able to see him. And that's what Elisha prays for his servant. It's not enough to say that there's more for us than against us. And so he prays in verse 17, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When his eyes were opened, then he could see. Now that kind of sounds like, well, duh, but it's actually quite profound if you think about it. Once our eyes are open, we can see, but oftentimes we aren't opening our eyes, or oftentimes we are not looking in the right direction. And he doesn't actually see until Elisha helps him to see. And I think that points out an important role that we have in each other's lives. We can help each other see. I think that's the importance of having other people in our lives. I think that's the importance of joining a book study or joining a Bible study or being in a mentoring relationship or a three-to-one relationship or entering into spiritual direction where other people can help us see where God is at work in our lives because we can't always see ourselves. And oftentimes, having another person who's walking with us in our life can do what Elisha did for his servant, and that's to introduce a new reality. Max Dupree um, said that the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And oftentimes I need help, or we all need help, in defining just what the reality of the situation is, because sometimes we can't see it. E Elijah didn't pray, Lord, do something, we're in a mess. He prayed, open his eyes so that he can see the reality of your presence with us. There was a deeper reality, the God level reality, beyond just the army that was arrayed against them. And I know I've prayed a prayer like that for other people. You know, God, I have no idea to, what to do with the mess in this person's life, but can you help them see that they're present with you even in the mess? Because Elijah's, Elisha's servant's fears are overturned by a presence that's already there. God was there all along. He just wasn't able to see the reality, and Elisha helped him see that reality. So I think that the other thing that this text helps reminds us of, which is where I began with, is that we have the opportunity to encourage people, 
to help them see that God is present and that their life is in God's hands, to help them remember the God factor. I mean, you've got chariots, and on the other hand, you've got chariots of fire. The, the chariots and horses of the enemy were surrounding Elisha, but the chariots of fire and the horses of God were surrounding Elisha and the other army. I mean, they were forming, they were forming a protective wall around him. And I, I love this picture of God showing himself in a similar shape, but in a more powerful form than what the enemy brought to the fight. It's like God is saying, oh, you brought horses and chariots? Well, I'll see your horses and chariots and I'll raise you this, mine are chariots of fire. You know, God wins. And so we can encourage each other with the God factor. I think of Lights of Remembrance that is coming up. We do this every year. It's to help us prepare to face the holidays if we've lost somebody that we love, maybe it's a fresh loss, might be five, 10, maybe decades ago. And Lights of Remembrance helps us to know that we can get through the holiday season while we're in grief over the person that we're missing. Lights of Remembrance is, is the church, it's people coming alongside you in your grief saying, we've walked through this before. We're gonna help you walk through it too. We're going to remind you of God's presence. You might be thinking, how can I face the holidays without my loved one? And our answer with Lights of Remembrance is, we will help you. We'll help you see God. We'll help you get through it. Now, I know human nature, and if you suffered a loss, at least one person will have said to you already that the holidays will be terrible. Yes, they'll be rough, but we have tools at our disposal. We have a deeper reality because God will be present with you. And that's the game changer. And that's what gets missed when Debbie Downer only tells you how bad it's going to be. So that's how we can help encourage each other by reminding each other that we might be going through a tough time, but God is present and so are we. What if Elisha had panicked in this situation? I went out with a friend of mine that I haven't talked to in literally decades and he just became a lead pastor, a senior pastor, and he asked me, what, what's one of the most important things I do as a lead pastor? And I said, one of the most important things I do is not overreact. Because oftentimes, it's not an emergency. It'll take care of itself. I, I think about all of the times where I sent the text too soon, or sent the email too soon, or had an angry meeting, or said something dumb when what I should have done was just waited and trusted God, was to rely on the fact that I knew that God was present. And I've learned to grow in that, to trust that God is present and not to overreact because I have a track record now of knowing that God is there. So let's look for how God is present and it's God's presence with us that will help see us through. And once we know that, then it's about holding fast to the truth. Verse 18, as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. So we have this great faith because God has surrounded us with his angel armies. And then the enemy advances. And what do we do? It's like a couple of weeks ago, David and Goliath. Now this is real. The conflict has been engaged. What do we do? Well, we can run the other way screaming, we'll all be killed. 
We can forget the faith thing and figure out how we can manage the situation, or we can still trust God, even if it looks like it's getting worse before it gets better. I mean, this is an election season. Can you trust that God is present if your candidate doesn't win? Can you trust that God is at work in the face of a recession? Can you trust that God is a healer even of the disease that you're facing? Can you trust that there are more for you than against you in whatever situation you're in? The enemy comes towards us. And what does Elisha do? He prays. Now there's a couple of things here. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is a way that we show our trust in God. Prayer refocuses us refocuses us on the resources of God, not just on our own resources. And prayer also usually requires some action on our part. I remember a, a very tragic moment several years ago where something was going on in the country and I talked to some guy and we were talking about what we needed to do in response to this and he said, I'm going to pray. And I said, that's great. And then what are you going to do? He said, nothing. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to wait on God. And I remember thinking, um, what if God's waiting on you? I mean, pray, but what if God's waiting on you to actually do something? So Elisha's prayer is not just the prayer of, I don't want to get involved. It's a prayer of involving God in the situation that he's already involved in. Elisha's very involved, and he prays specifically, and I love the prayer. Because the prophet, who has just asked for his servant to be able to see, now asks for the army to be blind. And after God answers the prayer in verse 19, Elisha told them, This is not the road, this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. That's the capital of Israel, not too far away. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. So here's the army of Aram inside the capital of the other city and now they're surrounded. And I don't think anybody's more surprised than the king of Israel. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elijah, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? And what does Elisha answer? Do not kill them. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. I think it's a really important part of the story because it shows the greater plan and purpose of God. On a practical level, most people are generally concerned with the things that affect them. But this shows where God's concern lies. Elisha prays for them to be blind so that the situation can change. They get led into a place that could have become a killing field. It could have been like shooting fish in a barrel. And the king recognizes this. He's like, should I kill them? I mean, these people are the enemy. They were just trying to kill you. Should we kill them all? In, in American politics today, the answer would probably be yes. But the prophet says, no, feed them instead and send them back. But Elisha, won't they just live to fight another day? Won't we just look weak? Won't we live to regret this? Shouldn't we take advantage of this turn and kill them? Well, 
maybe on a human level that makes sense, but God has bigger plans. God is working to save them too. And so when Elisha prays for his enemy's eyes to be opened, their eyes are opened to an experience of grace and mercy. Is that what people experience of us? And then what's the upshot? The upshot is Aram quits fighting against Israel. God uses this to bring peace. What they would have naturally done would have only ensured more war and bloodshed. So I think we have to be careful about who we label an enemy and how we treat them. It doesn't mean we have to agree with everything. We don't. But it means that we can always be Christ-like. We can always be gracious. We can always be filled with mercy, especially when we disagree. Because God has bigger plans. And who knows how God is at work. So these are stories of origin. So what do we learn about us? What do we learn about God from this story? We learn that there are more for us than there are against us. We learn that God is more powerful than the challenges that we face. We learn that we need to encourage each other to see God at work. We learn that nothing is impossible with God. And we learn that God's plans are bigger than our plans. So let me ask you three questions. What's the seemingly insurmountable challenge in your life right now? Number two, how does the reality of your life change when you can see that God is present with you? And number three, what is one thing you can do this week to encourage someone and help them see God present with them?